Brothers and sisters, grace and peace. Today, Jesus as judge, to quote Nick, don't leave. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. This is not Jesus as man of sorrow, as baby in a manger, as riding on a donkey. This is Jesus, Son of God, coming in His glory, sitting on His throne that's over the universe and being the authority over heaven and hell. This is Christ, Jesus, as judge. Now there's something in us, a lot of debris in us, and I know it varies on how, it varies on really on how you've dealt or been dealt with authorities in your life, but it's, we struggle to think of Jesus as judge. It's comforting for us to think of more comforting images like Jesus as teacher and maybe Jesus as healer, as friend. Today we're looking at Jesus as judge of sinners and next week, please come back, it's Jesus friend of sinners. And that, those images are much more comforting for us and I get that. In fact, theologically as a preacher and practically as a pastor, I encourage you to think of those images and to, to move more and more for, forward as Jesus, as, as your father, as, as your friend, as a teacher and healer in your life. In fact, when the disciples said, Jesus teach us to pray. He didn't say, begin your prayer this way, O great and distant judge. He said, begin your prayer this way, our Father in heaven. But I don't want us to look past um, what it means to know Jesus as judge and to not strip that from Him. We just don't like judgment, do we? Like, just nod your head. We don't, we don't like the Word. We don't like it when we experience it. Now, we love love. And we like justice. Justice is good. When justice is good, it vindicates the innocent and it punishes the guilty. But justice can go bad. Witnesses can lie and law enforcement can tamper with evidence. And unscrupulous lawyers can manipulate before a jury. And ju judges can tilt the scales of justice. And the truth can be distorted in favor of the rich and the famous. We know that, don't we, in our day. And justice is good even though it can go bad. We love love and we like good justice, but we struggle with judgment. One of my favorite headlines of the past several months is this. Man who stripped nude at Planet Fitness thought it was a judgment-free zone, police say. Isn't that great? Like, you know, I'm not a lawyer, Nick is, but maybe there's some others in the room. But like, that to me is an ironclad case in a court of law, right? You, you, you call your place judgment-free. Uh, I pay my money. I'm here. I think this guy's getting off scotch-free, right? We, 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 we want that. Look, don't we? How many of you want to be involved in a judgy church? How many of you want to come to a place and get connected and give your money and it's just full of judgment? We want, I mean, honestly, I, I, there's times where you, you want to put tape around an area and say, okay, judgment free. Don't be judging. Let me, let me just be free. And don't bring that judgment in our lives. But it's part of who he is. And listen, the Bible's not embarrassed about it. Some of you may be. Uh, the Bible's not embarrassed by the fact that God is a God of justice as well as a God of love. But sometimes we, uh, we pick and choose. Anybody remember Mr. Potato Head? You guys with me? Good. Now you're awake. Mr. Potato Head is a, is a toy. I think it's a toy. And there's a lot of assembly required in this toy, but it's a good kind of assembly. Now, most toys, it says some assembly required. And that would kill me as a husband and father when my kids were little because it was way more than some assembly and I can't assemble anything. And so, but, 
the Mr. Potato Head, it, it has a lot of assembly, but it's a really good kind of assembly because it gives the child or the adult acting like a child, it gives them an opportunity to pick and choose what they want Mr. Potato Head to look like. Y'all remember this? And so you can put things on him. You can take things off of him. And Mr. Potato Head looks exactly like you want him to look. You're God with Mr. Potato Head. And some of us reverse that. We attempt to reverse that with our Creator. And we pick and choose what we want him to look like. And we put some pieces back in the box. And can I call us out on that? And to say, just, just as God is a God of love, He is a God of justice. This morning, I want us to look at this parable in Matthew 25. I'm just going to piece it together for you. And I want us to look at it through three windows. And the first window, note takers, that's your cue. The first window is the, this window. It's the sheep and the goats. Sheep and the goats. Matthew chapter 25, verses 32 to 33. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats are on the left. Some of you guys that follow sports are like, wait, goat, greatest of all time. I thought the goats were good, man. Uh, not in this story, okay? So you have to amend your ways, your, your mentality here. But sheep and goats, this is the first window that I want you to see the story through. Sheep and goats. And I didn't grow up on a farm. I noticed some farmer friends of mine in the 930. But I didn't grow up on a farm. And I learned this week that sheep and goats often are together. And a shepherd will will tend them and care for them and lead them into in open pasture, whatever hillsides, valleys, and mountains and such. And he'll lead them, particularly in the day, sheep and goats are together. But at the end of the day, what does the shepherd do? The shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Sheep, you're over here, the farmer, the shepherd says, and goats, you're over here. Here's your pen, sheep and goats, there's your pen. I wonder what they counted at night when they went to sleep. But anyway, uh, next verse, 34 and following. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothed you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And real quick, I love, time out, I love that the guys, the, the folks here called out by Jesus. Notice the grace. Notice the grace involved. They weren't like, yep, nailed it. They're like, no, when? When did we do this? It's beauty, humility. Verse 40, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. This idea, this window, the first window of three windows this morning, the sheep and the goats, the idea is this, that Christ comes to us in disguise. A lot of us make the claim today that we're followers of Jesus. But as we follow Him, we need to know if He's the one we follow, we need to know that He comes to us in disguise. It could be the third grader in your kid's classroom. It could be the man at the nursing home whose family never comes to visit him. It could be the person in your company, the new employee that's invisible at the office. And Christ comes to us 
in disguise. I want to bullet point what Jesus taught. And what's been so cool is to realize how many places, how many stories these get um, infected into in Scripture, old and new. But here's what Jesus talked about. We read it together. Hungry, thirsty, naked, stranger, sick, and in prison. And I want us to keep these up, if you would. Our day is different than the day that Jesus lived in. And for some of it, guys, it's easy. And it's um, just nothing complicated about it. But to transfer it to our day, there are some complications. Let's consider that day and compare it to ours. The word naked. We've been mentioning that word a lot today. Kind of a cool theme at church. But the word naked there. Like for us, we live in a nation, we all are aware, we live in a nation where clothes are mass produced. Now, I think we need to be more conscious consumers of how much we spend on clothes and what's happening to people that are producing those clothes. You with me? Like that's part of following Jesus. So let's educate ourselves and let's think about it, all right? We're doing that. I'm doing that in my own life. It's difficult. But in our day, clothes are mass-produced, and therefore we can get them in mass on the cheap. But in Jesus' day, I bet everybody's dialed in on this. In Jesus' day, uh, he was born and he lived in a, a region in a time of great poverty. And so when someone was naked, it was, a, it was a bigger deal then. It was more difficult. Clothes were more expensive and harder to get, and they had to be reused. And so it's different in our day. Take, take this idea of being thirsty. It's pretty cool when you think that uh, Jesus tells this uh, story, or this story is told about Jesus in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. And he asked her for a drink of water, which is way cooler than you think it is. He asked a woman that he shouldn't have been talking to in the public square, and he asked a Samaritan woman, Jews and Samaritans notoriously hated each other, like bad blood. They hated each other, and Jesus asked her, and by the way, there's also ceremonial rules, like for us, water's water. Like if it's filtered and good, or in a bottle, you know, da-da-da, it just... But there, there were rituals and ceremonial customs of, of the time, and so even that had some limits there, and presented some challenges in that day. Desert, riding a donkey, going 20 miles, scorching desert sun. Hydration was huge back then. Honestly, I've never been here at Fondren and seen a car pull up and somebody open up a door and crawl out and go, water, water, I need, I, I need water. Take a stranger. In Jesus' time, hospitality was a big thing. Could have been, should have been a big thing. And people, hospitality then, y'all, it meant taking people in. How many of you would do that? I should look at my wife when I ask this question. How many of you would take in a stranger at your house? You would just, you would invite a stranger in. You don't know them at all. They're on the street. They have needs. And you're going to open up the door and say, man, I love Jesus. And Jesus taught this, so I'm going to invite you in. How many of you would be willing to do that? Probably not, right? I'm thinking at best, you would offer to pay for their hotel room, right? And in those days, they had inns, but the inns were very, very limited. And oftentimes, kind of mingling these two, a stranger needing to be taken in 
Could have been a sick stranger and there were no hospitals. There were no hospitals. So you're taking in a stranger who could likely be sick. And so you're bandaging wounds. You're offering them food. You're giving them soup. You're maybe you know, propping their head up and speaking words to them and giving them some comfort. In prison, first century incarceration in the Roman Empire was terribly brutal. Anybody watch the show on MSNBC called Locked Up? Terrible show. Don't watch it. But prison conditions aren't good. But they're way better, generally speaking, they're way better than they were in that day. And hypothermia, death by hypothermia, and death by starvation were very common in a first century Roman prison. Today, I did did a little research this week. Deaths in our prison system is mostly suicide or gang violence or natural causes. But a first century Roman prison was a brutal place. And Jesus is teaching us to look for the least of these. Now let's think for a moment. Getting very real about this. Let's look at the word hunger. I've got a friend, he's about 25, 26 years old. He lives out in the West Coast and in the Portland area. And he told me not long ago about some ministry they're doing. And he goes to parks and visits with people and meets people. He tells me the story about meeting a man one time and the man was obviously hungry. Well, my friend goes about a half mile away to a Trader Joe's. We need one in Jackson. Let's pray for a Trader Joe's. But he goes to this Trader Joe's and he buys sandwich stuff and water and some essentials and he makes him a a turkey sandwich and he gives it to him, condiments on the side and everything. He he hands it to the man and the man's like, what is that? And he says, turkey sandwich. He goes, "I, I want a ham and Swiss. Now, how many times, listen, how many times have you bumped into someone? And here's the thing, our staff are very aware of this. We have a large building in a, a, you know, depressed part of town, in in a city. And so it's, it's daily, daily people come to our building looking for need, looking for something. If you drive to Fondren Church, you'll see people on the corners. We want to be a church, you hear us say it, in the city and for the city, to seek the peace and prosperity of our city. But how many times has someone asked you for money to buy something to eat and you give them money reluctantly or you are kind of in the throes of decision whether you give them money and you're wondering if they're actually going to use that money for food. Are they really hungry? And this was a place of extreme poverty and squalor. There's a book out called When Helping Hurts. If you're in Christian leadership, if you lead at this church or any other church or you're studying to lead in a church, I would encourage you to read this book, When Helping Hurts. Um, In Haiti in 2010, a hurricane came through and it was devastating. I know there's been a couple of since then, but America showed up in a big way. And we brought resources to a country in desperate need. But we also, as we provided aid in a timely moment, we also entered into a realm of what when helping hurts cause unintended consequences. Can you imagine when you're giving out free stuff for weeks and months in mass, what is that doing to local farmers and shop owners and wholesale retailers? How can they compete against free? Imagine owning a business, right? And you're charging because you got a family to feed and somebody across the street sets up shop and they just give stuff away free. The, the realm of unintended consequences. So hear me now. It's a bit complicated in our world today. And America is massively wealthy. But even though it can be complicated, it should not stop us 
from caring for the least of these. I just want to challenge us to think as lean and mean and smart as we can about how we do help people. What's the first window that we're looking at today? Sheep and goats. And what's the big idea? Anybody remember? Christ comes to us in disguise. The second window that we're looking at is compassion and judgment. And here's the big idea with this. He judges because He cares. I'm going to say it again. He judges because He cares. Are you willing to say that with me? He judges because He cares. He does. I want to show you a painting from 1850. This is a French artist, and it's called The Gleaners. And like I did at the 930 service, I want to give you a moment to just look at it. As you're looking, I want, to ask, I want to ask you if it reminds you of any biblical story. Can you think? Don't say it out loud. You'll be proud if you get it right, embarrassed if you don't. Does it remind you of anything, anybody? It's a story that's come to mean a lot to me. Story of Ruth. When you're gleaning, you're doing really hard work. You're destitute. And you're hoping to eat. And field owners, if they were unjust, they would take everything and there wouldn't be anything left. And those who were just, who followed the teachings of Moses and Deuteronomy, they would leave something behind. And gleaning would involve people, again, in need, hoping to piece together a meal. Ruth, she was not an Israelite. She was a Moabite. She was a Moabite widow. And her mother-in-law was a widow, Naomi. She was an Israelite. But these two women, they rolled into town. And the next morning, Ruth crawls out into a field. And she's, she's gleaning. And a man named Boaz comes into the field. And Boaz walks into the field, goes into the field. He's the owner. That means he's the judge. He's the king. He's the big guy. And he looks over there. And he asks, who's that girl? He approaches her. He approaches Ruth and tells her. He tells her to look at his girls and follow his girls. And he tells her that he's told his guys. This is important. Remember what I'm about to say. Boaz tells her that he's told his guys not to touch her, not to lay a hand on her. Remember that. And then he points over to some jars, some water, and says, help yourself. And the crew's going to be having lunch soon. You're welcome to lunch. And there were these little... Little food, food that they had put together. These little toasted treats, kind of snack chips, if you will. They were the Doritos of the 10th century B.C. The food from God above. And she had enough. Ruth had enough to take home that night to Naomi. And they rejoiced in the goodness there. But imagine a different owner. Imagine a different scenario. You see, when a woman was destitute and when a woman needed help, just know this, that the cries of women were not heard in foreign fields. You see, before Jesus, Boaz kind of went Jesus-y. Ruth and them could look at him and say, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And when I was a stranger... You took me in. Exodus chapter 22, verse 21 and 22. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, 
for you are foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. Remember, he judges because he cares. He judges because he cares. Let's say that you have a neighbor. The dude dies. He leaves behind a couple kids. You you never really liked him. He leaves behind a 13-year-old son and a 16-year-old daughter. And you take them in. But in no time, you're abusive to that son and demanding. He's essentially a slave for you. And that 16-year-old girl, you take advantage of her, just imagine. And they go to bed at night and they cry out. They cry out because they had lost their mom and then they lost their dad and they've been taken in, but they're being mistreated. And God goes on to say, if you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. He judges because he cares. My anger will be aroused. I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. A little bit of history. When Israel would turn with their stiff necks and their hard hearts and their rebellious spirit, and they would defiantly turn and do the exact opposite of what God says he would, but he judges because he cares, he would give them over. In the, in the 8th century... Uh, The Assyrians came and captured. They invaded. And then it was the Babylonians. And then in the 4th century, it was the Greeks. And in Jesus' time, it was the Romans who had invaded. And He will give you over. He will hear the cry. God judges. He judges because He cares. And He's looking for people. Look, I I read that story of Boaz when I was a young man. And it's impacted my life. It has made me want to be a better man. It has made me want to look at the world and say, who's under me and who needs me? And and when I tell someone I love them, do I protect them? And am I a godly man? And am I leading my kids and my boys in particular to be godly men and to look for those in need and to be strong on their behalf? God judges. He judges because He cares. And we want to remove the wrath from God's love. But I'm telling you, we ought not to Mr. Potato Head God. I just made up a verb there. First window. What's the first window? Anybody paying attention? Sheep and goats. What's the big idea? Do you remember about sheep and goats? Christ comes in disguise. Second window that we've looked at. Compassion and justice. What's the big idea there? Anybody remember? He judges because He cares. Third window. Trying to make this sermon a little fast today. It's actually five windows, but we'll make this one three. Guilt, mercy, and movement. If you read this story later on, it's the offensive part. It's the objectional part. It's the part that's hard to hear. It's the part of us that says, God, why the judgment? Why are people cast out? Why hell? Why eternal separation? And in this story of sheep and the goats, the sheep separated to the right and the goats to the left, it's so interesting to note that they say the opposite. It's in the negative. Lord, when did we? When did we? We, we, we didn't do anything wrong. And you see, Jesus is telling us. He's showing us what we need to know in Jackson, Mississippi in 2019. And I just want this to fall where it may. But if you're here today... And you say, I haven't done anything that bad. That's just what the goat said. Just what the, you see, it's not just 
This, is a, this was done not on the basis of the harm that they had done, but the help that they withheld. You with me? So are we all guilty? Is everybody guilty? Like, I know, you, I know you and I, we spend a lot of time judging other people that aren't as good as us, that have done some terrible things. And so we tend to think, well, we're not so bad, and it's all going to work out in the end. Like, I don't, want you to, I don't want you to believe that. Like, if that's your tendency, your proclivity, like, I want to shake you up a little bit this morning. Anybody a little nervous now? Let me, let's keep going with Jesus, the judge, and let me make you a little bit more nervous. Jesus told the most famous story ever in the story of the Good Samaritan. It's here. I want to show you a picture. This is called the Wadi Kilt. And the Wadi Kilt is a place between Jerusalem and Jericho. One of the most, uh, at the time, one of the most dangerous places in the world. It was known as the Road of Blood. It was known as the Road of Blood because so many people died here. Now, some of you are probably thinking, wait a second, the Good Samaritan is a fictional story. It's a Brilliant, made-up story by Jesus. And that is true, but Jesus set his story in a real place. You can do that, you know, especially if you're Jesus. And Jesus tells this story that all of you know. By the way, I know that's a couple of weeks ago, Jesus the teacher, but how cool is it to think about his impact? Let's do it real quick. I, I remember years ago, I was five states over and bumped into somebody, and it was really, I was really flattered. They mentioned something, a story that I had told at a conference years ago, and I thought, that is so cool. That was years ago and many states over, and I, they remembered, and they've told people, and I am awesome. And I had just a moment of pride, which has been humbled and refined out of my life. But I just thought, I am so awesome. Somebody remembered a story I told. And I just got all puffed up. And then I remembered that I'm not awesome. But what if you're Jesus? Like you told a story 2,000 years ago. And people can't stop talking about it. And people like me that read it over and over again. And I, I probably read it a thousand times. And there's so many layers to this story that's so wonderful. I, I'm going to count that as only Jesus. So in this story... It, the story's prompted by a man, a lawyer who comes and says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It was a question from somebody, but a trap. And Jesus, stay with me, some of you will get this. Jesus says to him, he answers his question with a question and says, what does the law say? He knew this man was a good Jewish lawyer. He said, well, what does the law say? And the man said, well, love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yeah, do that. Go do that. He tried to trap Jesus. Now the guy feels trapped. You with me? Anybody with me? And so the guy asked, who's my neighbor? Then the story. You know it, priest. Well, let's start with the man. That, by the way, that probably wasn't here. The man is traversing this road of blood. And he gets jumped, mugged, and beaten, and he's left naked. We keep talking about naked. And he's left naked close to his death. And a priest comes by and does nothing, and a Levite comes by and does nothing. And then, here we go again, Jesus <laughs> teaching us not to hate anybody. Like, if there's a group or a tribe of people that you hate, like, that needs to be confronted. For you to be a follower of Jesus, that needs to be confronted. And Jesus sets the hate person as the hero. The hated person is the hero yet once again in his story. And the Samaritan 
help someone. You know, remember when Jesus said, go the extra mile? Everybody says that today. It's a cliche. But Jesus went the extra mile in the story. The man, the Samaritan, takes him and lifts him up and, and bandages him, gets him to the inn. There was room in that inn. And he tells the innkeeper, this is him going the extra mile. Hey, here's the money to pay for him. And I'm going to come back in a couple of days. And if I owe you any more money while you take care of him, I'm going to pay you that money. He goes the extra mile. And then Jesus asked a question, which was wonderful. He said, who's the man's neighbor? In that story that I just told you, who's the man's neighbor? And the man couldn't even say it. He couldn't say the word Samaritan. There was so much hatred. He said that, you know, the guy that took care of him. Yeah, that. Let me give you a thought here. Could put that quote up. I'm going to stir it up in some of you today. This is not a separation story about Christians and the rest of the world. Now, I'm, I'm going to context here, okay? This is three parables. Three parables in Matthew. It's the, fi- the fifth of five discourses. The first is the Sermon on the Mount. Fifth discourse in Matthew. And this is a series. Y'all remember Luke 15, lost coin, lost son, lost, lost sheep, lost son like a trifecta of parables, and they're all kind of connected and helps to understand each one. But this in particular, just like that, but it builds on each other. And Jesus is not saying, hey, it's Christians and everybody else. That's not what this story is about. This story is a separation story about genuine Christians and imposters. About those who mouth it, but don't live it. Two ways. Two ways to tell what you believe. What your mouth says and what your life says. And one is more reliable than the other. That's important to the judge. That's important to the glorious Son of Man who sits on the throne of the universe, who has authority over heaven and hell. I've struggled in years, these last 15 years or so, but I've appreciated guys like Francis Chan and David Platt. They give me headaches at times, but they've roused the church, and in particular a younger generation of believers, to think what does it really, really mean to be a follower of Jesus. And in this story, it needs to sit with us for a moment. It needs to sit with us because we need to look at our lives and say, are we in? Remember Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, I illustrated with him a couple of weeks ago in a, in a different level. But do you see the documentary that just came out about his life and his last question on his deathbed to his wife is, honey, I hope, I hope I've been a sheep. I hope I've been a sheep. How have you lived? You know, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. If our hearts are moved more toward hatred and prejudice and inactivity and excuse-making and judgmentalism, it stands to reason that we might not be in. Are you an imposter? Are you really in? In the story, we have the mercy of God. We have a just judge and a merciful judge. Aren't you glad? We have, a, we have a just judge 
and a merciful judge. Consider the following with the merciful judge. I'm sorry, Ezekiel 33. Son of man says to the Israelites, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Has it ever gotten so bad where you wonder how you can live? Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? That is the heart of God. It is mercy. He doesn't take pleasure in it. The summer of 1995, when I met this beautiful brunette from California, I remember looking at her and thinking, I really think she's pretty. And a friend brought her over to meet me, and he had hopes that she would like me. But another guy liked her. He lives in Idaho, so I talk about him. His name is Dave Kemp. He's not on social media, don't even try. But Dave was a good-looking guy. He, played, he went to an Ivy League school. He played football. He had thick blonde hair, and he was chiseled, just all ripped up, cut up. And he was hitting on Susan, and she would say today that they didn't, they didn't date, but they did hang out. And I think he thought he had some hope with her. And I saw him one day flirting in the quad by the volleyball on the campus of Colorado State where I was finishing up seminary and she was joining staff with crew, Campus Crusade for Christ. And I remember going back to my room and praying. I remember thinking, man, I don't, I'm not chiseled. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I went to Mississippi State. I'm not you know, cut up and I don't have thick hair and all this stuff going for me. And I just prayed for wisdom. And I thought, I felt like the Lord was speaking to me. And He said, Robert, you know, you don't have any of that. You're right. But you don't have really anything going for you, but you have funny going for you. And can I tell you, funny one? Funny one in the end. And listen, let me, add, let me get you to think with me. You think I took pleasure in Dave losing and being left out? Yeah, I sure did. <laughs> I still think about it. That's been 25 years ago. You know, like I still get pleasure in that. But you know, that's my... That's my wicked heart. So pray for me. But that's not God's heart. When G- Jesus was observing the destruction, the temple in Jerusalem, Luke 19, 41, as He approached Jerusalem and saw the city, He wept over it. He didn't take delight. He wept over it. God's heart is not dark. He is a just judge. And He judges because He cares. There is wrath in love. Abraham struggled with how God might take people out. He said this, and this is what, this is where I am. If I start getting flimsy in a theological debate, or some of you ask me questions that I'm not quite sure of, I fall back here. Abraham, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? I believe that. I believe that he will do right. So when it comes to judging, as we wrap up this story, I want to say this. You and me are not to play referee. And some of us think there are a lot of Bible verses. I don't know where you go. Maybe something on evangelism, which means to proclaim good news. But some of us think we play referee and we don't. So let me drop James 4.12 on you. 
There's only one lawgiver and judge. The one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Ever been disappointed with somebody? You're like, who are you coming up in here? Like, who are you? I, I feel like there needs to be a little tone today with that. Who are you to judge? You and me, let's don't play referee. We leave that to God. And we have too many imposters in the house today. Let's think about that. We have to close here because some of you are really nervous and you're thinking, man, RG, we need that friend of sinners sermon fast. Like you guys might come back on like Wednesday night for that one, right? Don't forget this word in the, in the story. It's the word inherit. Somewhere there. But it's the word inherit. And this word inherit, hear me now. This word. Let me ask you, if you inherit something, how do you inherit something? It has to be given to you. And somebody has to die. And that's the story of the gospel. So do not think. Do not think today's parable. Now, look, I was talking to somebody over coffee yesterday morning. I said, man, if this was the only story in the Bible, then it would be kind of, you may conclude something different. But that one word spells out and gives us context for what Jesus taught, what the whole law that Paul called the schoolmaster is pointing us to. And that is to, this is a, not, a, not a go do good so you can get in. But to quote Martin Luther, the reformer from so many years ago, it's faith alone that saves, but faith that saves is never alone. Y'all, if there's not fruit, then you probably are just posing. Would you stand with me? And I know it's heavy, and let me pray before we sing. Lord, I've stood and I've pointed. I've talked to people today. But I know my own heart sometimes, like a potato head toy, I, I pick the parts of you that I like and I put some other back in a box. And God, as I stand before your people, as I pastor and as I preach and as I lead, Lord, I pray that I would preach the whole counsel of God. And preach the word in season and out of season. And God, you are a, a merciful judge. And without it, I would be banished into darkness and eternal separation. And I thank you that your spirit has quickened my life. You've convicted me of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the one judge, the one lawgiver is you. And I thank You for Your mercy. Lord, may we today as we sing, everyone who's a partaker in the Gospel message, may, may we sing and worship and for some of us pray and maybe some of us kneel at the altar. And God, do business with us. Convict us of our posing. And lead us into the truth. Help us to be a people who love God, who love people, 
and who love the mission of God. I thank you that you judge because you care. In Jesus we pray. Let's sing and you come today.